All right, welcome to another History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. A few bit of housekeeping today before we get started. Uh, The first thing I'd like to tell you guys about is that I've created a Patreon page. Um, If you don't know what Patreon is, it's basically a site that allows you to raise money for projects that you're working on, particularly creative projects. And I've created a Patreon page um, simply uh, not so that this becomes... Uh, a second job or a serious source of income, but simply to pay the web servicing fees, the web hosting fees. Um, That's really the only cost beyond my time that this podcast requires of me. And so uh, beyond that, I really don't need any extra income from this project. This is more of a passion project for me. Uh, But the web hosting fees are in the hundreds per year. So if you're interested in donating even even a dollar a month, um, or less, um, it would be greatly appreciated. It would help to chip away from that uh, one cost that this podcast does require of me, which is those web hosting fees. So if you're interested, it's uh, patreon.com slash history of California, and that's where you'll find my page. All right, so that's the first bit. Second bit, um, this will be the last episode that we cover on prehistory. Um, I know I mentioned that I was looking to talk about uh, the Channel Islands uh, native people that lived there. Uh, but I've decided to end with this episode because I'm going to come back to them later. I've kind of worked out an outline for myself, and I think I can return to them later in a way that both gives uh, the people that live there their due as well as not uh, you know keeping us on a track that has a narrative flow to it. So hopefully uh, that doesn't upset any of you. If, not, if so... There's not much I can do about it. I'm already moving on. So this will be the last week where we talk about prehistory. All right, final bit of housekeeping. I just want to reiterate just so people understand. The point of this podcast is to be brief. And that means I can't cover every subject in detail at such a level of detail that will do justice to some of these people that I've talked about. Um, There is so much information out there that you guys can find if you're interested in the subject matter. All I'm trying to do is give you an overview, a basic overview of these different subjects, which hopefully will pique your interest and cause you to want to search them out and learn more yourself. Um, This is supposed to be a survey and a survey that hopefully piques your interest in different directions. So I just want to say that again as, you know, we're coming to the end of a section which I could have spent to be honest, a whole podcast itself working on, but um, alas, we are moving on. So let's get started. In another lifetime, I had planned to become a minister. I even went as far as attending seminary. Now, even though I didn't become one, I did learn a lot of interesting things while I was there, including some helpful mental models that I still use today. One area of difficulty that we had while in seminary in studying the Bible was trying to read the Bible in its own historical context, in cultural location, without bringing our cultural baggage to the interpretation. Now, of course, that's impossible to completely separate yourself and be completely objective, but we tried. And it's an effort that's worth it because, unfortunately, many of the ideas about what people believe the Bible says have more to do with our modern concepts of 
humans, the world, heaven and hell, than anything that comes from the ancient biblical context. Now, the terms that we use to distinguish between these two ways of interpreting the Bible are, on the one hand, exegesis, and on the other, eisegesis. Now, ex, from exegesis, meaning to take out, versus ice, from eisegesis, meaning to put in. Uh, We engage in this behavior all the time. So, for example, um, we often, at least today in this time period, have a habit of romanticizing subsistence life or early Native people. We, you know, we want to go back to this kind of bucolic, uh, early way of living that some people had, where they were in touch with nature. You know, um, I I think about you know some of the movies that have depicted Native Americans in a way that um, makes their lives look peaceful and perfect. Now, but even though. Even though a lot of us kind of believe this idea, at our core, we know that modern life is a superior way to live than a hunter-gatherer. We pretend that there's something more pure about that way of living, while at the same time gladly taking aspirin and other medicines to help relieve our headaches. So this is an example of kind of romanticizing or bringing in some idea from our modern day into a historical period to make it seem much more pure, romantic, whatever you want to say. Um, And I want to emphasize that I've tried my best to come to this subject, uh, this subject matter, as objectively as I can without the cloud of ideology, um, even though it's an unavoidable limitation that we have. Today we're going to look at the Kumeyaay, the last native tribe that we'll look at before moving on to talk about the European arrival. Now, like I've said before, we'll be encountering Native people throughout this history, but this will be the last time that we encounter them in the prehistory, meaning the last time that we encounter them before the written records. Now, the Kumeyaay uh, were people organized into a federation of autonomous groups with clearly marked territories um, around the modern-day San Diego and Imperial Counties and Baja, California. Now, one of the many interesting things about this people group is that they lived in a variety of climactic and geographical zones. Like many native groups, as we've discussed in the episode on the Talaway, uh, the, the Kumaye uh, moved with the season to follow the, soup, the food supply. Uh, their bands typically had two main camps, a summer camp and a winter camp. The winter camp was typically at a lower elevation to avoid snow or colder temperatures, and the summer camp was typically at a higher elevation to avoid those desert temperatures in the summer. Both campsites, though, were typically located near a water source of some kind, whether that be an ocean, a river, or a lake. Again, these people, like the Yokuts that we discussed last week, are grouped together by language. That's the binding element that gives them a common identity. Within the common language, of course, there are dozens and dozens of individual dialects and even sub-dialects within those dialects. Like the Yokuts, the Kumaye also lived in structures made from tule roots. However, they used other brush and willow leaves as well to construct their homes. The structures typically had two holes. They had an entryway at the front and then a hole in the top of the structure for smoke. These natives did not typically uh, cook indoors, though. Rather, they used the the indoor uh, area for for heat, uh, primarily when it was cold. So it was a a method of uh, climate control within the hut. Cooking, on the other hand, was typically done outdoors. They made beds in their houses out of tule mats or animal belts, pelts. 
Now, in terms of clothing, before the Europeans arrived, women typically wore skirts made from willow trees, and men wore something akin to a loincloth. The weather was quite warm. Obviously, if you've ever been to this part of the world, you know how warm it is, meaning that a lot of clothing was not needed. They typically would go barefoot, but wore sandals when necessary. Now, even though these tribes were fairly autonomous, they united in a confederation for the purposes of self-defense. In order to work together, they developed a courier system of communication. Now, we haven't really discussed government too much in detail in previous episodes, in large part due to the lack of information. Speculating with a paucity of information is fun and all, but uh, oftentimes it says more about the person speaking than the subject they're attempting to describe. Fortunately, in the case of the Kumaye, we do have a bit of information to work with. Now, here's the basic understanding of how the government works. One man was selected to lead the tribe. Typically, this person was the son of the previous leader, so, you know, a a patriarchal or patriarchy system where it's, uh, and it's also paternal, so it's through the son to the first, through the father to the firstborn. But the choice, interestingly enough, did require band approval or tribe approval. Now, each leader also had a cabinet that worked with him, an assistant that served as a speaker, think like a press secretary, and a council of experts in specific areas that would provide expertise to the leader, enabling him to make better choices. Now, interestingly, decisions made by the leader were not mandatory. If a particular group or subset within the tribe did not like a decision, they could opt out of the implications of those decisions. This attributed, uh, this idea has attributed to these tribes a seeming preference towards individual freedom and tolerance. But they may again, uh, this might be a further, going back to the things I talked about in the prologue, be a romanticization. Um, Certainly these people didn't have some liberal concept of the individual, but, you know, we're acting out of what worked best for survival. Obviously, ideology may have played a role, but certainly not the European liberal ideology that the United States would later have and many of us would start to see through as a lens. Now, in terms of food, Kumai had many different food sources. They hunted large game, including deer, mountain sheep, and antelope. They hunted them using bows and arrows made from reeds and stone. Like most of the tribes we've encountered, big game was much more of a rare occurrence. It was time-consuming, and expeditions would likely end in failure. Consequently, they tended to rely more on small game, like birds, rabbits, and rodents. The Kumai used similar methods to the previous tribes. The Kumai used similar methods to previous tribes that we've discussed. One interesting tool that they used, though, was called the rabbit stick. It looks kind of like a lopsided boomerang and was one thrown in a similar way. Natives would throw these boomerang-style sticks along the surface of the ground and would have a lot more success with these than other devices because of the large, wide strike zone of something that's the shape of a boomerang. An arrow, on the other hand, required a lot more precision than this boomerang. In addition they would also drive the rabbits into traps. A large group of the tribe would run into the bush and chase the rabbits into traps, screaming, running and screaming. I'm sure that was terrifying for those poor rabbits. 
Now, when I was on a honeymoon in Mexico, uh, not a honeymoon, the honeymoon, I got to try various interesting foods. One that will never leave my memory was guacamole with a side of crickets. You would take the chip, first dip it into the guac, and then dip or sprinkle crickets on top. The texture is difficult to describe, but suffice it to say it wasn't my favorite dish. But bugs are making a comeback as a food source. I have had some excellent cricket protein bars. Um, now, the kumeyaay um, have been eating bugs for thousands of years. Bugs served both in a, as an important food source as well as an important nutritional source for them. They ate grubs, ants, grasshoppers, crickets, and likely many more types of bugs. Like the yokuts, the kumeyaay also relied on acorns, and I thought I'd spend a little time in talking about the process of preparing acorns since it's such an important food staple for so many of the native peoples that we've talked about. Um, now, it is also interesting that they're a common food source because they can actually be eaten raw. The acorn, the meat inside, um, contains tannic acid, which is not lethal, but it really sucks. It tastes bad and can cause severe stomach problems. So to prepare the acorns, first they remove the shell using two rocks, referred to as a hammer stone and an anvil. Then they would use a winnowing basket to remove the skins from the meat of the acorn. This process is called, obviously, winnowing. And essentially the nuts are rubbed in the basket to loosen the grip of the skin around the meat. And then the nuts are then tossed into the air, which causes the skin to fly or fall off. Women would then use a pestle and a mortar uh, to pound the acorns into a thick meal. And not meal as in dinner, but meal as in a thick, substancy, creamy, chunky substance. At this point, the acorns still contain the tannic acid, which, then, which also has to be removed. The process for removing the tannic acid is called leaching, in which they would pour a large, uh, they would pour water, both hot and cold, into a large basket over and over uh, the acorn meal until the tannic acid was removed. And I believe that the way they knew this was by the way it tasted. And after that, they could use the uh, acorn meal for really anything to cook. Uh, they made pancakes, various kinds of flatbreads, but most commonly just ate it almost like oatmeal with water added. In addition, they ate many other types of seeds as well. Apparently, according to the research, the kumeyaay uh, also ate large amounts of pine nuts, which you've, if you've ever bought them at the grocery store, uh, one has to wonder if the kumeyaay ate most of the world's supply of, of these nuts, given how much they cost. Uh, the process for pairing pine nuts was far less time-consuming because... Uh, they do not contain a tannic acid, um, and they can be cooked immediately either in the sun or over an open fire. And the other type of seeds, again, continuing this pattern of native people figuring stuff out before uh, their European arrivals, ate chia seeds in large amounts. Now, we haven't really spent much time about games that native people play, but since this is our last episode, let's spend a little time here. Um, we sh I think it's really important that we not exclude the lighter elements of a culture because that can make these cultures seem anemic or um, 
just kind of dry in subject matter, but these cultures also had many forms of play and fun. One of the games they played was called Shinny. It's essentially an aggressive version of hockey. Uh, the groups would be divided into two teams of as small as 10 a team to almost 50 a team. The teams would carry curved sticks and their feet to hit a large ball into a goal. Typically, the game would go until one team scored a single goal. Players would play with bows and arrows also as a different game, shooting, them, shooting each other to practice uh, their aim. So like a smaller recreational version of Nerf Wars. Adults played an interesting game called Payon, I think is how it's pronounced, P-E-O-N. It's essentially a gambling game. The tradition in this culture was uh, that gambling was an important way that wealth was redistributed. So I'm assuming that means that uh, wealthy people would enter the games in order to lose money to keep tribal cohesion. And so basically the game involves two teams of four. One team had three pieces of white bone or wood and one black piece. The opposing team would try to distract them while they switched the bones behind their backs. After the switching of the finish, the opposing team would guess. If they guessed correctly, they would get to keep the stick. And they would continue the procedure until they acquired 15 sticks. And you won. In addition, they played many other games, including a simplistic dice game with uh, sticks that had uh, certain symbols burned and rolled them. Um, these are many of the interesting things I learned about, uh, about this people group. So, this has been the final episode of the prehistory section. I've decided to move the episode about the native people in the channels to a, a later episode, as I mentioned before. And as we move into the written record, I'd like to close with a few thoughts about when it comes to thinking about the implications of the European arrival. Number one, violent subjugation and or taking of land from another people group is always wrong, no matter what. Two, it's important to remember that people have always been moving. The native people, like the Europeans, came to this continent from somewhere else, too. But it's important that I said my first premise before I said the second one. Because the first one is more true than the second one is true. And it's important to remember them in that order. Three, the natives did wipe out large animals and predators when they arrived. It's interesting to think about the idea of uh, the Midwest of the United States being like the savanna in Africa, but that's what it was. And unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on your point of view about lions roaming in the cornfields of Iowa, uh, we either have to thank or can, you know, rightly blame some native groups for destroying these animals. But you can see the game that we get into when we talk about who is wrong, who made the mistakes. Um, and ultimately, some people are more culpable than others, but in the end, we are all culpable in some ways. It, I believe it's in human nature, unfortunately, and hopefully this changes to believe that you need to wipe out your competitors. That it's a zero-sum game. 
And I hope, as our world progresses, that we move out of that. And on that dark note, we will leave the prehistory. Next week, we will meet Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, the first European explorer to visit the land that would become modern-day California. I hope you all have enjoyed these first few episodes about the prehistory. I am really looking forward to our next few episodes as we begin to encounter the written record. And so I'm not sure yet how many episodes we will spend with Mr. Cabrillo. It could be just two. It could be more. I'm going to wait and see how these play out. But I'm excited to start working on these, and I'm excited to get to meet some of the people that um, were the people that gave things names that we still continue to have today. Um, And so we can begin to understand both the negative sides of this history, of how the state began to get formed, but also the exciting adventure that it was. So I will leave you with that, and stay tuned for the next episode. (laughs) 